Please turn now to the fifth chapter of Matthew. We are journeying through a series um, where we're chronologically walking through the life of Jesus using all four of the Gospels. Most of you in here are aware of that. And you're probably also aware that right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' most famous discourse. Now, as you're turning there, we're going to focus in on the very last verse of chapter 5, which is verse 48. But in a minute here, I'm going to read more than that so we can get the context of verse 48. Remind us, really, of the context, because we've been going verse by verse through this, uh, this section of Scripture. Now, I want to remind you that Jesus is delivering this sermon. I've said this many times now to his disciples, and that's very important to understand. So this is King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. In the introductory portion of the sermon, Jesus' introduction, are verses 3 through 12, which is a section called the Beatitudes. And in that, he shows us what kingdom citizens should look like, the traits that should distinguish them. Then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus teaches that kingdom citizens are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that are to be carrying out good deeds to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And so the kingdom citizens, in other words, are to have a profound influence on the world. Then in verses 17 through 48, Jesus begins showing us the type of righteousness, the type of right living that marks kingdom citizens, that should set them apart, should set them apart as being different. And these verses that we're focusing on today come at the very end of that and summarize really what Jesus has been saying. So in this section, verses 17 through 48, the first part of that section, verses 17 through 20, Jesus has taught us that he himself fulfills and completes the Old Testament law, and that he's not doing away with it. Then he taught that kingdom citizens are to keep the law as well, but to keep it in a radically greater and a radically deeper way than the scribes and the Pharisees. Kingdom citizens are to keep it from the heart. And to illustrate this truth, then Jesus in verses 21 through 47 gives us six antitheses, or six contrasts. So he'll say something along the lines of, you have heard it said, and he'll quote or refer to an old... Testament text, and then he says, but I say to you. So he's giving us this contrast, not not distinguishing, not saying that what he's teaching is different than the Old Testament, but contrasting the way the people of that day, the Pharisees and the scribes, had viewed the Old Testament compared to the way it should be viewed. He shows us the deeper meaning, the proper interpretation of the law so that kingdom citizens can keep it rightly. Then Jesus sums it all up on in verse 48 which we're going to concentrate on today. But to get the flavor of all this whole, everything I've just talked about, I want us to read from verses 17 through 48. So please stand if you would right now and cue your Bible up to chapter 5, verse 17. Go ahead and stand if you would. And once you've found that passage of Scripture, and we're going to read this entire section here of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 through 48. And I'm doing this again to remind you of everything I just, I just said Talk about these different sections, these antitheses. I want you to hear them all and hear how it sort of builds to this final verse, verse 48. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. The word of the Lord says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would Allow us through the Holy Spirit to take this verse seriously. That we are to be perfect as our Father is perfect. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up our ears to hear your word this morning. To look closely at this 48th verse of chapter 5 and the other scriptures that support it. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to leave here differently today with a new passion for holiness that we didn't have before we came in. So, Lord, we desperately need your help. Holy Spirit, we need you to open up ears and and enable us to hear the word rightly. And, Lord, 
I need you to, to enable my mouth to speak rightly. So we pray these things. We ask for your grace now. Grace upon grace as we open up the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Have anyone in here ever climbed a mountain? Has anyone ever climbed a mountain? And I'm not talking about like a hill. I mean a mountain. Something where that you're actually tired after you've done it. So yeah, some of you have done some mountain climbing. And perhaps even a snow-capped mountain. Has anyone climbed up to a mountain that's that high of an elevation where there's snow and stuff like that? Well, I've shared with you guys before. I grew up in, in Quito, Ecuador. Quito is in the Andes Mountain, right in the heart of the Andes Mountains. And Quito is actually 10,000 feet above sea level. To give you an idea, that's double the height of Denver. So it's a pretty high-altitude city. And Quito was built it was on, on, the, on the foot of a volcano called Pichincha. Um, and so it's an active volcano, but the city's still there. Nothing's happened uh, yet. But, but Quito was built right here on the foot of this mountain. And several times when I lived there, I had the opportunity to climb Pichincha, to climb up the mountain. And at first you're climbing and it's hard work and you have to go through the forest as you're going up the mountain. And finally you get past the tree line. And there is a little bit of snow on the top of Pichincha, but not a lot. Not like, not like some mountains in Ecuador. And you climb up there and once you got past that tree line and you could see over the tree line, you would see a breathtaking view. And I'm going to show a couple of pictures. Here's one. You would come up and you would see the city. So that, that is Pichincha. You c- come to this point and you look out and you just see Quito out there. Now, Quito is a city of about, well, when I was there, a million and a half people. It's probably more like three million now. And, and so you see this amazing view. It would be breathtaking. And you sit there and you just be in awe of what you were seeing. And actually, you can see beyond the mountain ridge in the background, there's more valleys. And on a clear day, it may look like this. All right? And you see the other volcanoes that surround the city of Quito, Ecuador. It's actually a, a breathtaking experience to climb that mountain and to witness those sights once you get to the top. Now, since I left Ecuador, and we had to climb it. My soccer coach actually made us run up the mountain when I was playing soccer. Now they actually have a gondola thing that takes people up there. So it's not as nearly as much fun now. I mean, to, to get into a little car and go be taken to the top. I mean, it's really worth it when you've worked hard and you get to the top and you see the beauty of what's out there. Well, I want us to see something this morning. Verse 48, in my mind, is the mountaintop experience of the Sermon on the Mount. You are reaching the peak here in verse 48 of chapter 5 when Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is one of the most startling statements in the whole sermon here in all the scriptures. Really, Jesus has been showing us that those who call themselves citizens of his kingdom are called to a higher righteousness, a higher law keeping. And with each antithesis, each contrast that he's been showing us, his ethical demands have soared higher and higher and higher till we come to this amazing statement. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is a glorious statement, but I'm afraid many people view this as a massively burdensome statement. I don't think people hear, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and think of mountaintop experience to see glory. Instead, they think valley of frustration and despair when they hear this phrase. They hear what Jesus says. My goal today is to be 
your mountain climbing instructor, if you will, and let's go up the mountain and see that this is a glorious statement, that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So we're going to jump right in this morning, and your first point on your notes is simply this. If you are a kingdom citizen, then you are called to perfect righteousness. If you are a kingdom citizen, then you are called to perfect righteousness, a higher righteousness, a higher law-keeping than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what you're called to. Now, you, my first point here may not make you feel like you are on the mountaintop yet. You hear that and you say, oh my. But let's walk through this. Verse 48, you therefore, this very first portion of the verse here, you therefore, the the word you here in the Greek is emphatic. Jesus is drawing a contrast here between those who are his kingdom citizens and those who are not. He's saying you must be different. Now remember that Jesus' sermon is addressed to disciples. So when he says you therefore, he's not just talking generally. He's not talking to the crowd. Hey, you. He's talking to his disciples. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, kingdom citizens, must be different. You must be distinct. You must be set apart. You must be perfect. Now, in the immediate context here, we see that Jesus has just been talking about, in this last antithesis, about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us and thereby demonstrating that we are sons of our Father who is in heaven. So kingdom citizens reflect the Father by loving enemies and by praying for those who persecute us. Right? Remember verse 46? Let me back up a little bit. He says, says all these things, then he, then he draws a contrast. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So the contrast Jesus is drawing in the immediate context here is that you can't be like the world. Tax collectors and Gentiles, which, which, is a, a, which represents the world here, represents those who are not God's people. You, in contrast, cannot be like them. You must be perfect. But... I want to challenge, certainly that is part of the picture here, but I want to say that verse 46 isn't just tied to the sixth antithesis here that precedes it, but it's actually a summary for the whole section of thought from verses 17 through 47. I believe this is a summary verse for this whole section. So really, verse 48 points us all the way back to verse 20. Matter of fact, you could just put verse 48 right after verse 20 and it would make perfect sense. So let's do that. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, verse 48 is telling us what Jesus is talking about when he talks about a type of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's perfection. That's what Jesus is calling us to. You are to be different. You are to have a righteousness that is greater, deeper, truer than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had a surface level righteousness, a legalistic rule keeping that left them hellbound. I mean, Jesus says you will never enter the kingdom of heaven if that's your righteousness. You are called to a greater righteousness, a perfect righteousness. So now we need to ask the question, what does Jesus mean here by perfect? 
you therefore must be perfect. Now I'm going to stretch your brains here. You ready? Here's what he means. You therefore must be perfect. I, I honestly was frustrated as I studied this text this week to see how many people try to get out from underneath that word perfect. Well, he can't mean perfect, perfect. It means a different type of perfect. I'm amazed at some of the commentaries that I read and some of the, the, the teachers I tried to, to see how different people have approached this text, how, how they try to play games with the text here. I probably found a dozen different ways that people, even people much smarter than me, tried to explain that what Jesus was saying was not that you have to be perfect. You must be perfect, but Jesus doesn't mean that. A lot of these commentators do this by pointing to the Greek word here that's translated perfect. Okay, the word here, uh, teleos, it can be translated mature, it can be translated accomplished, it can be translated fully developed or complete or whole. And they're right, the, the word does mean these things as well. Oftentimes in the New Testament, it is translated as the word mature. But these scholars conclude that Jesus, therefore, is not talking about perfection, but instead he's just talking about um, being spiritually mature and growing in your maturity. They would say that Jesus is not talking about perfection as in holiness, but that this is solely tied to the previous antithesis, and Jesus is talking about the way you show grown-up faith is that you love your enemies. Well, the text certainly, friends, does include spiritual maturity at the very least, but I believe it means so much more than that, and that Jesus doesn't just solely have spiritual maturity in mind. But he has our holiness in mind. I believe when Jesus says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He is talking about our holiness. He is calling his people, his kingdom citizens to be holy and to be perfect like our heavenly father. I don't think there's any way to get around the fact that the Jews who were listening to Jesus. They would have understood this language to mean that. Because Jesus has been all throughout this fifth chapter, he's been quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. And when he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, the Jewish mind would have immediately gone to Leviticus 11 verses 44 through 45. Or Leviticus 19 verse 2. Or Leviticus 20 verse 7. Or Leviticus 20 verse 6. All of these verses in which we find the same formula spoken. And here's the formula. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's the formula. And when the Jews heard Jesus say what he said, their minds would have immediately thought of that. They would have just been thinking, about, okay, so you got you to gotta have grown-up love. Grown-up love? They would have heard holiness. You be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Any good Jew who knew his Torah even a little bit would have recognized the same formula in Jesus' words. And this Greek word, teleos, it was used in the Old Testament translation into the Greek, that, that what we call the Septuagint. It was used to refer to people who were blameless or to a sacrifice that was unblemished. For example, Deuteronomy 18.13 says this, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. That word teleos is used in the, in the Septuagint there for blameless. Genesis 17 verse 1, God speaking to Abraham. The, Abram, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Again, the same word is used, teleos. Be blameless. 
So something more than simply being spiritually mature is in view here, although I do believe maturity is part of it, and I'll come back to that in a second. But even if you reduce this word to simply mean maturity or completeness or wholeness, it doesn't get you out from underneath the the teaching of the text. You're still not off the hook because the maturity, the completeness, the wholeness we are being called to is God's maturity, God's wholeness, God's completeness. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be mature, if you want to use that word, as your heavenly Father is mature. That's a perfect maturity of our God who is immutable, unchangeable, the same yesterday and today and forever. You've got to be like that. You must be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Okay, let's use that word. Well, that's a perfect completeness of our God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You've got to be like that. Okay, what about wholeness then? You must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Well, that's a perfect wholeness of our God who is and was and who is to come. So that's your standard then. You still can't get out from underneath what this text is teaching by simply making the word not say perfect. So what word, what one word sums up this God, our Father? It's holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And there's no way to get around the ethic that Jesus is calling to. He is calling Kingdom citizens to holiness. This is therefore a standard for us to be sanctified. We are called to a perfect righteousness. Jesus is calling us to be holy as our Father is holy. He's calling us to be perfect, to be sanctified. But how many in here are perfect? <laughs> how many of you in here are, have got that down? None of us, obviously. That's why so many people, I'm afraid, try to get around this teaching of Jesus's and make it mean something other than what it means because we know we fall short of verse 48 in chapter 5. We know we fall short of this command. We know that we are saints, yet we are still sinners. We know we are not perfect. But Jesus knows we are sinners too. He's not teaching that we can attain sinless perfection in this life. Now, some holiness preachers or sinless perfection preachers will take this text and say, well, this means that you can somehow be without sin in this life. That's not true. That's impossible because we'll still be battling sin until we are with Jesus. Either he returns or we're with him in heaven. And we know this isn't what Jesus is teaching, that we can attain sinless perfection. We know this, first of all, because the Beatitudes tell us to mourn over our sin and to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those verbs back there in the Beatitudes indicate a continuous action. We are continually to be mourning. We are continually to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's not that we stop mourning at some point because I have nothing else to mourn about or that I'm finally filled up with hunger and righteousness, so I stop. Those verbs mean we keep on doing that. So long as we are on our journey toward heaven, we continue to hunger and thirst. We continue to mourn. And not only that, but in the very next chapter, Jesus will teach us how to pray and will teach us to pray this, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the model prayer that Jesus gives his kingdom citizens to be continuously praying. We are to live a life of continuous prayerful confession of our sin. So we'll always be fighting and confessing sin. But that does not change what we are called to. We are called to holiness. And even though we cannot fully attain sinless perfection in this life, we are called to holiness and therefore we are to strive for it. Strive for holiness. Strive for perfect righteousness. So my next point is simply this. If you are a kingdom citizen, then you will strive for perfect righteousness. 
you will strive for it. You therefore must be perfect. You must be perfect. Perfection is not optional. We are commanded to be perfect. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Kingdom citizens must aim to be perfect. Holiness is not optional. Christians, Christ followers, kingdom citizens, however you want to say it, are people who are becoming holy. The scriptures never speak of carnal Christianity. The scriptures have no category for a Christian who accepts Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. Christians are changed beings. We are new creatures and therefore we live with a new life flowing through our veins. We are now strangers and exiles in this world growing less and less like the world and growing more and more and more like our Father, which is what we read in 1 Peter 1. And we read it again. Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All right, so let me stop right there. If you think you can get out from under the word perfect in Matthew chapter 5, then you got another problem here in 1 Peter. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do we hear Jesus' words and do we conduct ourselves with fear? Do these words make you fear when you hear Jesus say, you therefore must be perfect? How about these words from the author of Hebrews? Chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for what? The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do those not make you fear? Strive. So we are to fight. We are to strive. Strive for holiness. Now, People in this day and age are afraid to use words like that. And so sometimes when you talk about striving or fighting for holiness, what is the label you get labeled with? Legalist. You are a legalist. But we can't escape these words in the scriptures that we are to strive, we are to fight. God calls on us to work toward our holiness. And this is not legalism. Friends, legalism is an effort to gain one's right standing with God by doing good deeds. But sanctification is not an effort to gain right standing with God, but an effort to glorify God with good deeds because we're already in right standing with God. There's a huge difference. You see, the problem is many times we don't want to work hard at our Christian walk, so we just label obedience as legalism to justify our laziness. Let me say that again. The problem is sometimes we don't want to work hard at our Christian walk We don't want to work hard at obedience. And so what we do is we label obedience as legalism. Well, that's just legalism so that we can go about being lazy. But Jesus, as well as the rest of the New Testament, tells us to fight. We must strive. We must work. But don't take my word for it. Let me give you some passages of Scripture. Listen to some of these words. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
run. Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24 talk about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if you get out from under Matthew 5, 48, and then you figure out a way to get out from under 1 Peter, now you've got to get out from under Ephesians chapter 4 as well. Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Do you hear these words? Run, put off, put on, put to death. 1 Timothy 6, 12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. Hebrews 12, 1, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. These are, these are working words, fighting words, striving words. Second Peter 1.5 For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make effort. Scripture is filled with the language of effort. Again, this is a call to put forth effort. It's not to make us right with God but is the outflow of one who's already been made right with God. Nor is it an effort apart from faith, but it is the outflow of genuine faith. Nor is it by our strength, but it is the Spirit's power in us. I love how Kevin DeYoung kind of summarizes hard work in in one phrase. He says it's Spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. I love that. Wish I could think like that. Spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. So we cannot blow off Jesus' command, Jesus' call for us to be perfectly righteous. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So let me say it again. If you're going to get out from under Matthew 5, verse 48, and 1 Peter chapter 1, and Ephesians chapter 4, now I'm going to add another one. Now you've got to get out from under 1 Thessalonians 4. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul says, if you don't like the teaching on holiness, it's not him you dislike, but it's the Holy Spirit you don't like. For it's the Holy Spirit in you that that gives you that impulse to fight and to strive toward holiness. That's the great tension of the New Testament teaching on sanctification. We work because he's at work. We strive because he's already doing a work in us. So that's my next point. If you are a kingdom citizen, then you will be empowered for perfect righteousness. We are empowered because the moment that we become citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, we are sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, enabling us, empowering us toward righteousness. Now, you may say, well, where do you see that in today's text? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, here's where I see it. In these words, your heavenly Father. We are not called to be perfect so that we could be children of our heavenly Father. We're called to be perfect because he is our heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father. We are his children, and the only way we become his children is by new birth By the Spirit. We were, by nature, children of wrath, children of Satan, citizens of the kingdom of darkness. But we were rescued, we were ransomed, and now we are his children. 
and we are so because our dead hearts were awakened. We were adopted as sons. We were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So now we are co-heirs with Christ and his father is our father. So these words that Jesus is speaking to us saying that your heavenly father isn't a prescription for us to become sons. It's a command to those who already are sons. You are a son of the father, so act like it. And if we're sons, we've been made alive and we are indwelled by and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to obey, to be holy. Romans 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a glorious passage of Scripture. It's the spirit in us that motivates and empowers us to fight, to strive. It's the spirit that motivates and empowers us to be holy. Paul prays in in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6. He prays that we might be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. 1 John 4, 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we have this beautiful tension. Now, I've used this illustration before to try to, to try to illustrate some of the tensions in Scripture. There's lots of tensions in Scripture, but we have this, this beautiful tension. We work, and God is at work within us. So uh, the way I use this illustration sometimes, I'll say, pretend there's a bungee cord attached to that wall, and there's a bungee cord attached to this wall, and I'm going to grab this bungee cord and come over here, and then I'm going to grab this bungee cord and come over here, and I've got to hold on to both of those bungee cords, and I can't logically connect them. I can't fully bring them together and logically connect them and then rest. Instead, I've got to hold that tension. And so we have this great tension. We are called to work, work, work. Yet, it is Christ, it is God, it is Spirit that is at work within us. So we hold those two tensions. If you decide to let go of one of those two tensions, guess what? You're going to fall into error. If you let go of this tension over here and say, well, it's not all about God doing work in me, and it's just about me working, what? You will fall into legalism. And you'll be holding a legalism bungee cord. Or if you let go of this one and you hold on to this one over here and say, well, it's just God doing work in me. I guess I just need to let go and let God and therefore I don't have to do anything. Well, then you're going to fall into license and foolishness and you'll fall into some of the the non-lordship salvation that so plagues the church in America today. We have to hold on to both of these tensions. Not because I say so, but because the scripture says so. Let me give you the scripture. First Corinthians 15, 10. This is Paul speaking. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen to this. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, 
but the grace of God that is with me. Or Philippians 2.12, you're familiar with this one. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or Colossians 1.29, Paul again speaking. For this I toil, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the way Paul speaks. And this is the tension we must hold on to. You must be perfect. So work, work hard, toil, strive, because he's at work within you. And he gets all the glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And this hard work that we do, we do because he is at work within us. Okay, And it's something that's happening in all of our lives. And it should be something that's increasing in all of our lives. So our next point is simply this. If you are a kingdom citizen, you will be progressing toward perfect righteousness. You will be progressing toward perfect righteousness. You must be perfect. Now that verb there, this command, must be is a, is a future middle indicative verb. Very much indicating that it is something that will be and is happening to us. Therefore, it is a process. It is progressive. And as we mentioned before, this word can be translated to be mature. So we also see that this perfection that we are called to is something we grow into. So let's look at how Paul uses this same word, perfect, but he uses it in the sense of being mature. Colossians 1 verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You can replace that word mature with perfect. Maybe some translations do. We can present everyone perfect in Christ. Or Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. There's that word again. Or perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. God is at work in us because he has saved us. And if you're truly a Christian, you have already been justified. And thus you've been declared clean before God. You are positionally holy. You are positionally sanctified. Yet, as long as you are in this body, you are working towards who you already are. You are progressively becoming the saint you already are. Though you are positionally holy and sanctified, you are progressively becoming holy and sanctified. True saints experience progressive sanctification. Our justification is the ground for our sanctification, but it doesn't annul it. We work because we are saved. I'll let Paul explain it to you. Philippians 3, verse 8. Now this is Paul talking about all of his past things that he could have claimed because Paul had, you know what Paul had? He had a righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he decides that stuff's done. So here in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Philippians, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now listen to what he says. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, there's those words again, press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Did you hear that? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The ground for Paul fighting and striving for perfection was that Jesus had made him his own. And it's the same thing for us. Brothers, I do not consider myself that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, and by the way, that's the same word, teleos. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any one of you thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Kingdom citizens work hard because we've been declared holy, justified, we are saints. And because his Holy Spirit has worked within us, we have great assurance. And that's my last point. If you are a kingdom citizen, then you will reach perfect righteousness. If you are a kingdom citizen, you will reach perfect righteousness. You can be rest assured that it will happen. It will not happen in this lifetime, but you will be sanctified. You will be made holy. For our Father will glorify himself in his people. He has called a people to himself. He wants to purify that people for himself so they might reflect him rightly and glorify him as we were created to do. He will make it happen. We were created to image the Father in perfection and God will get the glory when he finishes the work he began in us. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because our sanctification is grounded in our justification, we can have confidence. 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he will make us holy and he will keep us holy and will bring about our perfection when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 and guys, I'm just cherry-picking scriptures here. This is all in the New Testament, all right? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of our Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We will become holy as Jesus is holy. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our holiness is happening. It will happen. Not only is it happening now in this lifetime, it won't fully happen. We will be constantly and progressively um, sanctified as we continue to fight against sin. But we know that we can defeat sin because we are dead to sin. 
And we progressively are being freed from, we are already free from it, but we progressively be defeating it. We are free from sin. And one day we will never sin again, and we will be holy as he is holy. That day we will see him face to face. Philippians 3, 21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. In 1 John 3, 12 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So my question is now, do you see the scenery? This text is not a valley of frustration and despair for kingdom citizens. This text is a mountaintop. Because when he says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that means he's going to make it happen. He's going to give what he commands. That's what grace is all about. Jesus giving what he commands. But this is only a mountaintop for the believer. So my only application for Christians here this morning is for believers is to fight. Fight for your sanctification in the light of who you are. You are children of your Father in heaven. He is a good Father who has given you good promises. Those promises were given to you to keep you, to cleanse you, to preserve you. So stay in the word that's why I chose that song, Every Promise of His Word. That's my application for you, for you this morning. You fight, and how do you fight? You fight with the only weapon you've been given, this one right here. Fight, fight, fight. Fight for holiness. Fight for sanctification. Fight to be the man or the woman, the father, the mother that God has called you to be. Fight to be the child that God wants you to be. Fight, fight, fight. Fight with the Scriptures. Don't sit around and be lazy and call this legalism. Fight. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you see how many scriptures you've got to come out from under now if you're trying to get out from under Matthew 5, verse 48? My only application for the unbeliever here this morning is the application with any text. If you're not a believer, repent and believe. Repent. You are not perfect. And without perfection, you will be cast out into utter darkness. You need an alien righteousness. You need a righteousness that is not your own, not a righteousness that comes from you keeping the law. That's deadly legalism. That is legalism. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven, that is legalism. And you will die in your sins. But you need a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You need to turn away from your own attempt to be perfect and put your faith in Christ alone. Then he will deposit his spirit into you and will will begin to move you toward a truer, a deeper, a greater righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to those who are citizens of his kingdom. Only then, my friend, will Matthew 5.48 not be a valley of darkness and dread. Only then will it become a great mountaintop of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory for your word. There is not a misstep in your word anywhere. Jesus didn't misspeak when he told us to be perfect. 
Your word has been given to us to drive us toward holiness. And so our first reaction upon reading Matthew 5.48 is, oh my goodness, how on earth could I do this? But that's the whole point. We are to be driven to you for grace and mercy. We are to understand who we are as sons. And then we are to fight hard. Fight to obey your commands. For those who love you, keep your commands. Jesus, we love you. Forgive us for calling your commands legalism. Oh God, does that not scare us? Jesus, we should be frightened to the core that some of us in here, myself included, have sometimes called your commands legalism. What fools we are. Father, please forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make us the people we need to be. And Lord, when, when we get to see Jesus, when we see you, Jesus, we won't be patting ourselves on the back. We'll be raising our hands in utter worship because you are the one who made it happen. You have surely done it because in you, it was finished. So praise you, Jesus. May you receive all the glory. Any sanctification that happens in our life this week, we give you the glory for. We give it all to you. And Lord, I just pray for anyone in here who's not a believer. I know some of this stuff sounds probably like Chinese to them. Oh, but God, if you'll just open their eyes, if you'll just soften their heart, it's not Chinese, it's heavenly language. And that they will come to know you. Oh, Father, I pray there be anyone in here as an unbeliever that you would penetrate that hard heart right now. And that they would see that they're trying to live a life that will lead them to hell. They're trying to impress you. Oh, Father, may they stop trying to impress you and instead bow their head and submit to you. And to come to know the Lord Jesus the only one who was ever, ever able to fully please you in every way, who lived a perfect and righteous life, the life we need. So God, I pray for those unbelievers in here this morning. I pray for all believers as we sing this last song, that we sing it from the heart and truly mean the words we say. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.